Welcome to Rap Stories, a show where I get the background on some of my favorite albums of all time by the artists who made them. I'm your host, David Dennis Jr., and today I'm joined by Bay Area legend Too Short to discuss his album, Life is Too Short. I wish I could tell you about how much I listened to Too Short's fifth studio album, Life is Too Short, when it came out in 1988, but how I rode around blasting I Ain't Trippin' till my speakers busted. Check out my style. How Nobody Does It Better was the soundtrack to some of my wildest times. How the title track made me want to scream that one faithful Too Short staple at the top of my lungs. But I can't tell you all that about this album, because I was a baby when Life is Too Short came out. However, I grew up knowing Too Short as the dude who under no circumstances could have his music anywhere near my ears. I was lucky if I could catch a lyric on the radio, or maybe while my older sisters were bumping this music in their rooms. It wasn't until I was older that I got to experience what made Short Dog the legend he is. By the time I was in college, Blow the Whistle was ubiquitous as one of the undeniable songs you heard every Friday or Saturday night at the club or frat house. I was an adult who was free to play whatever music I wanted and my parents couldn't tell me no. Digging through the short archives was like flipping through the pages of a pimp's journal. All you bitches, hoes, and all that shit. Here's another rap that I'm ready to spit. It goes like this. My name is short. I'm tearing shit up like never before. There were lessons on how to stay fly, introductions to the slang of the day, and of course, lots and lots of talk about sex. If there's one album that gives you the full Too Short experience, it's Life is Too Short, his most raw and diverse. What is life? Life is too short. I play young bitches like it's a sport. Yeah, I play bitches just like y'all. Like Dr. J played basketball. You can call me too. Don't say it twice. You get me real mad and I'll fuck your wife. See, I'm not proper. I'm really polite. Too short, too short. Don't say it tonight. Too Short was coming off a couple of successful albums, but at the same time getting criticized as a one-trick MC who relied on lewdness instead of lyrics. This album put all of that to bed. Rhymes and cuss words are straight-up rebukes of anyone saying Short can't rap. And Oakland is one of the definitive tracks about the Bay Area. This is the album that solidified Too Short as someone who wasn't going anywhere. It's still his most successful album and the one that helped make him a household name. You want to know about Oakland in the 80s? What it means to be fly in the 80s? Or what it was like to be a hustler moving units out of your trunk in the 80s? Look no further than Life is Too Short. And here to discuss this Bay Area classic, it's one of the godfathers of West Coast rap. Too Short, welcome to Rap Stories. What's up, what's up? Nothing much, man. Let's get right into it. When was the last time you listened to this album in full? Well, I have a ritual. I do. Um, I tend to um, take little uh, highway drives, like like a five hour drive from L.A. to to Oakland. You know, four hour drive from from Vegas to L.A. I, I zip through Phoenix or something like that. I just get on the road. A lot of times, I'm by myself, and I don't always listen to Too Short. But I have those road trips where I go. Let me just let me tap in to some Too Short, and it's like a reminder. Like I need to remind myself. 
what is too short. I, I usually do it when I'm like working on new stuff. So I go, I go back and listen to the old stuff whenever I'm working on new stuff. Cause I don't want to become something that as an artist, I don't want to become something that I'm not. I want to always be too short. So what about this one in particular? You remember vividly one of those road trips bumping life is too short. Uh, well, it always gets airplay when I get in that mode, because like you were just saying a minute ago, this is the, this is where too short becomes defined as I know what to do. And this is the blueprint that I follow for the rest of my career. Everything before this is me trying to find my way. This is actually like, you just made a platinum album. You just went on a, a, a world tour. Like this is the one that's like, lets me know this is my job and no, it's no longer just my high school hobby. So where were you when you wrote this album? Take me through that time period. Where were you when you put this together? I signed the Jive Records on the album before this one, which is called Born to Mac. And the probably the most popular song on that album was Freaky Tales. And when I signed the Jive, I was doing this thing where I had been a rapper since 10th grade. And every since like 1981, I had a rap partner named Freddie B. And we used to sell cassette tapes all through Oakland and around the Bay, mostly in Oakland. And when I get to 1987 and I'm recording Freaky Tales and the Born to Mac album, I'm literally in my collection of already written rhymes. And I'm, re I'm recycling rhymes from the days when I used to sell tapes in the streets of Oakland. So I signed the Jive Records on the Born and Mac album. And the first project I have to give them shooting from the hip is Life is Too Short. So I would say probably the first, damn, like the first five or six albums that I did with Jive, probably all the way up until getting it, my 10th album, and maybe even a little bit beyond, I was still recycling all those old, old rhymes from the streets. I wasn't using them word for word. Like this whole album wouldn't have been rhymes from back in the day, like before days before that. But I would just take chunks of it, like this page or this section, and I would make it fit to whatever I'm working on now. So for years, for albums and albums, really, and definitely on this one, I was literally just recycling rhymes. I had a, it wasn't even like a, like people talk about, yeah, I had my rap book and my composition books. I literally had a box, like a U-Haul box. And if you dig in the U-Haul box from bottom to top, it was a pretty tall box. It was full of fucking rhymes. I remember like my process, I used to take the old rhymes from the early eighties from high school and I would just lay them all out and I'd come up with a title, new title. I'd have new beats and I'm vibing. I'm just looking through all these old pages, trying to see what fits, grab a little section, write something new to go with it. And it was just like inspiration. It would get a song started. It, it had a lot of, lot of punchlines, a lot of funny stuff. And that was just my process, man. It was a cheat code. But, you know, I, my, I felt like as a songwriter, I'm not throwing away anything I ever wrote. Like the world needs to hear all this stuff. I hear a lot of songwriters go, oh, that's something I did a long time ago. But it never came out. And I'm like, it's not new to... It's not new to you, but it's new to everybody else. So some people just don't like that. They like, if I'd made it in five years ago and it didn't come out five years ago, it's going to stay there. I'm not like that. So where were you when the album came out? Uh, I was still hanging out in the streets of East Oakland, man. I was engulfed in the life of, you know, bringing that image of too short to life. You know, um, on Born to Mac, I'm sitting in this Cadillac. It's a convertible Cadillac, customized everything. 
I'm literally sitting in the car wearing a bunch of gold chains. That car belonged to the guy who was um, financing the Born and Mac album who launched Dangerous Music with me. His name was Ted Bohannon. That was Ted's car. And 90, 99% of those chains I was wearing on the album cover belonged to my homeboys that all came to the photo shoot that day. So the whole thing was push short in the car. Everybody put all your jewelry on short. We're going to make him look like the man. So the next year, I make a lot of money off Born and Mac, off that album. I do a lot of shows, give me some fly jewelry. And, you know, I, I had to go to um, Ted Bohan. I said, dude, I have to buy that car. That car has to be mine. I can't be the guy who sat in your car. I have to get in that car. So when Life is Too Short comes out, I'm riding around the bay looking like the last album cover. I'm talking on my cell phone. I got the big rope chains on. I'm driving the car that's on the last album cover, and I'm pulling up everywhere, jumping out. And I'm and you see, you don't just hear too short. You see it. I'm going everywhere. I'm in everybody's city, everybody's neighborhood, the hood, the upscale, whatever. I'm everywhere. And I I drove that car like all day, every day. That was my that was my whip. So that's what I was doing the day that the president of Jive Records left the Grammys called me on the phone, left the Grammys and said, I want to come up to Oakland and meet you, Barry Wise. And Barry Wise jumped off the plane. I went to pick him up in that Cadillac. And, you know, he tells the story later on. It was, it was it, just like anybody would have said, it was like, it was like the fucking album cover coming to life. And I put him in the car. It's like 1988. And he sees the phone. He's like, can I make a call? I'm like, make a call. He called New York. He's like, yeah, we're fucking too short. I'm in California. It's February, it's 80 degrees. We got the top down and, you know, the rest is history. But that's what I was doing when, when Life is Too Short came out. I was driving across the Bay Bridge, riding through San Francisco, Oakland, with the top down, talking on the cell phone, smoking weed, and looking like Too Short. Living the raps, right? Yeah, I was, I was making it real, man. I, I had to do it. It was something that I knew I had to do, and I did it. So Life is Too Short is currently your highest-selling album to date. It is certified double platinum with over 2 million copies sold. In 2022, Rolling Stone included Life is Too Short in their list of 200 greatest hip-hop albums of all time. So with that being said, where did you sort of get that confidence? You talk about, you know, those first early years. Where did you get that confidence to find yourself with this album? The concept was born on the Born to Mac album. It was, it had a lot to do with cassette tapes. Cassette tapes... You had to play side A and then take it out and turn it over and play side B. So the same thing was um, the side A, side B was the same concept on albums, wax. So I wouldn't make it. It was probably like my first uh, four or five albums that went nationwide, maybe more than that. If you go get a cassette or you go get the actual album, all the songs on side A are clean no curse words and as soon as you flip it over it gets extremely explicit so i did that on the born and mac album and you know it eventually went gold but when it first came out it probably sold a couple hundred thousand copies and life is too short i followed up the concept but the only difference is when we start when we were making life is too short my engineer his name was al eaton Al Eaton did not work on Born to Mac with me. Born to Mac is me, a couple of my homeboys, 
you know, I had a keyboard and my other homeboy had a drum machine. He had a real 808 drum machine, which was like, that was like the Holy Grail or some shit. And we just got in the studio, man, a couple of homies and just banged it out. That's me on the keyboard playing all the little basic bass lines and stuff. And we we made the Born and Mac album in like three sessions, three nights. And it was just, it was just, those were the only resources we had. Um, it was quality, but at the same time, we didn't have a lot of time to like second guess anything. Every song that I rapped on the Born and Mac album, every single song was just one take. Every song. I didn't, I didn't, wow. I didn't even know then that you could stop and fix what you messed <laughs> uh, up. Uh. There's one part on Freaky Tales where I messed up and I go back and I did something weird in the studio. Like I, I rapped something on another other track <laughs> to make it sound better or something. But I didn't know the technique of like stopping and punching in and fixing mistakes and stuff. Life is too short. I, I work on the album with Al Eaton. We did the next few albums at his studio and Al's pretty good as a musician. He's, he's, he's from a, he's from a background of being in a band. He plays guitar. He plays keyboards. He knows how to work his studio. He mixes, he does all this stuff. So Al brings a whole new element of, of teaching me how to record. Like I had already been in the studio multiple times. I did three albums with 75 girls. I did uh born a Mac with, with my new crew and the, the, you know, the dangerous music crew. And then I, we get, we find Al Eaton and he's showing me all these little techniques of how to record through computers and you know, what you can sample and you know, just how to layer the, and stack the vocals and, you know, bringing in singers on, you know, later on on songs like the ghetto and stuff. And, and actually his guitar playing is, is amazing. Cause that's Al playing guitar on life is too short. If you jump to the next album after life is too short, that's Al playing guitar on a lot of those songs. Like what Al's playing, you can hear, um, pimp the hoe has a cool little, little vibe. That's the Al Eden vibe. Listen to, um, city of dope. And you hear like the blues and stuff. And that's, that's Al doing that. So a lot of my um my love for the blues and the funk, he shared the same love for music. So Al was right up my alley on let's make it funky and let's make sure it has the blues in it. So which a lot of hip hop artists aren't focused on the blues. And I'm focused on like the bass lines and the rhythms and the tempos. And nobody does it better is a blues song. Straight up. It's the blues. The music is it's just just a fucking blues riff. I just think that it's the same concept that I was doing where if you go listen to Life is Too Short on a cassette or an album, there's no cuss words on side A. But we just got better at it. And the difference was Easy e called me in 1989 and asked me did I want to go on the Straight Outta Compton tour. And I went on tour with 300,000 copies sold. And by the end of the tour, I'm at 800,000 copies. And after the tour, the after the wave of what the tour created after that, you know, with the radio and all that stuff, it it instantly went to like 1.3 million. So to get to double platinum is a classic album that just never stopped selling. And it just kept selling. I would put out new albums and life is too short. We just keep selling. And, you know, I don't understand the magic of songs like, uh, shake that monkey and blow the whistle. I don't know what the ingredients are, how you make a song like that. And I couldn't tell you the ingredients of how you make a life is too short. Why is life is too short? More popular than every other album. I have no idea. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Talk about going from an independent artist selling out of your trunk and on the street to widespread distribution at Jive. What was that transition like for you? So coming from Oakland in the early 80s, there's like zero options. You're not, there's no label that's going to sign you. Um, we had some independent labels doing stuff that, that more or less were motivation. Um, a guy named Mickey Moore, they call him Mickey Moore in the streets. He had a label and he was putting out music and stuff. It was, um, there was a label over in Berkeley called Fantasy Records use their studio sometimes, but they were like more like a catalog kind of label where they were just putting out oldies and they, they were so far out of the loop of what hip hop was. And I'm sure somebody over there was like, we should have gotten that hip hop stuff, but they, they couldn't see it. And we had no options, zero options. So our first choice was to sell cassette tapes in the street. There was no such thing called a mixtape or Man, I'm gonna get my mixtape. It was no, it was no name for it. We just did it. We we had no choice. Like we tried it to see if somebody would buy it, and they bought it. And then a lot of people started buying it. So that was the early hustle. And then when I met um Dean Hodges, who owned Seventy Five Girls Records, Dean had already did his homework. He was a street guy who looked like a rock star, who acted like a rock star, and he wanted to be a, a rock star, but he couldn't play instruments. He couldn't sing. He couldn't rap, but he had the money. So he went and hired a bunch of musicians. He got us in the best studio. He bought all the best equipment, you know, electronic equipment that was available. He just created the environment. And I was the one who came into that system and, and got hot, you know, and sold some units. So Dean was the one who was teaching me about how to record, how to get it mixed, mastered, how to get it manufactured, and how to distribute it. And it was just, it was no middleman, no team. It was just Dean. And he was like, we going here, we going there. We riding around in the two-seater bins, pulling up on all these spots, dropping product off and picking checks up and picking money up. And, you know, he, like I say, he was a street guy, but the way he was selling these records was like a street shit. I could really relate. So I was sitting there like a sponge, just remembering all the addresses, all the names, all the phone numbers, all the routines. And I just learned the game straight, straight from, from him to me on how to do this music thing beyond just writing rhymes and, and recording on a microphone. He showed me how to do the business. 1987 comes, we're getting ready to put out Born and Mag. I'm no longer with 75 girls. We still have no options. You could ask MC Hammer. Ask E-40. Like, we out there. Ask Tony, Tony, Tony. We're out there. We all got the vibe. We all got that that heat that you're going to know us to bring soon after, but no outlets. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you just do the same thing you always do. E-40 went to his Uncle Charles, who was right. previously in the music industry and knew how to sell records out, you know, not just in the Bay, but outside of the Bay. 
and we did it. We had little distribution houses and little one stops, you know, you know, they call them one stops, you know, the distributors that, that sing your stuff all around the city and what around whatever region. And it was a great turnaround, man. Like you, whatever, whatever you manufactured would cost you about 50 cent. Whatever you sold would make you four to $5. And that's the, that's the formula of the Bay. You just do it yourself. And so in your opinion, is this the greatest too short album of all time? Or what is your too short album Mount Rushmore? If you have one, this is just life is too short is the biggest selling too short album. I think, um, it has elements on why it's the biggest selling album. When I talk to Too Short fans, they're just like, that was that was the best Too Short before I tried to start really making Too Short. You know, like before I tried to refine it and 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 make it for the, for the world. That was just Too Short. I didn't even I didn't even know, you know? Just that was the rawest element ever. It was my like college. That was me getting my master's degree. Like me really figuring out how to do it. Uh, the album after that was Short Dogs in the House. The album after Short Dogs in the House was Shorty the Pimp. And these three albums are very important because Life is Too Short is me and Al Eaton. Just, you know, spearheading what is what the direction that the project's going into. Short Dogs in the House is a follow-up of that. It's me and Al Eaton. We're in there and we're in control. Nobody else is really guiding the ship. And Al's my, like, you know, my partner, we, we doing this as far as making the music good. So the next album comes up shorty, the pimp and Al Eaton in between albums, in between short dogs and house and shorty, the pimp Al Eaton goes to visit his friend Felton pilot. Felton Pilot is the music director, the guy who's doing that for MC Hammer. Now, they've made all this money, and they did all this stuff where Hammer's records were crossing over, and Al Eaton comes back and tells me that I need to be more like MC Hammer. And I'm like, what does that mean? He's like, you need to sell records to white people. And I'm like, I'm just, I'm into the funk, man. I'm not really trying to make records for a certain group of people. I come up on the funk, Parliament Funkadelic, Ohio Players, Cameo, whatever. I'm on the funk. I'm going to keep it to, with the funk, and I'm going to keep my style of talking shit. And he's like, well, man, you should never say the N-word again, and you should think about, look at what Hammer did, and you should think about what it takes to make records that cross over. So I was like, in so many words, fuck you. I'm not on this, I'm not on this shit. And I'm talking about the moment. The day one, session number one, we're going to start recording the album. That's two albums after um, Life is Too Short, Shorty the Pimp. So I'm, I spent a week in there arguing with this man, a week of paid studio time, arguing with him about this ain't what it's going to be. So he decides to give me the fucking lazy engineer routine, like no motivation. And he's, he, Al, he you know, we, 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 we had a little falling out behind that, but it's a lot of good things that were made between that partnership and ain't no hard feelings, but he kind of quit on me as an engineer and everything he was doing. And I had Aunt Banks on speed dial, my man Aunt Banks, who, who picked up the slack from there. And we made some of the biggest two short records and dangerous crew and all kind of, all kind of songs together. 
Um, Did Al ever come around and say he admit he was wrong? No, never that. We don't <laughs> ego don't do that. We don't do that. So Banks comes to Al's house uh-huh. and says to Al, "Teach me how to work your studio." I'm, he didn't say it in those words. He said, "You just sit over there and don't do nothing. If I have a question, I'm gonna ask you." So he asked him a million questions and figured out how to how to work where we needed to work. And Aunt Banks came in and made the Shorty the Pimp album with me. After that, somewhere along the line, we brought in Pee Wee from Digital Underground, who was a keyboard player for Digital Underground. He, from that point on, he played keys for both groups. And then we brought in Shorty B, who was a bass player, guitar player from D.C. that had relocated to the Bay. And we put me and Banks, Pee Wee, and Shorty B together. You say, what's the best two short album? I feel like if you listen to the work that we did, after Shorty the Pimp, that would be Getting Where You Fit In album, the Cocktails album, you know, the um, Getting It album number 10, as well as the Shorty the Pimp album. You listen to those albums, that's when you hear the expertise of what I'm doing. I'm, everything's working for me. But those albums, to me, sound better than Life Is Too Short. The quality's better. The bass is better. But it, they just don't outsell them. They all go platinum, but we never get that double platinum again. I don't know what we did to do that. I don't know why that is the best album. I have no idea. But like I told you before we started talk, before we started recording, Life is Too Short has the most songs of all the albums. It has the most songs that I do in my live performance. Like I do a couple songs off every album, but I do a handful off that album. And that album only has nine songs. I would have put cocktails in the Mount Rushmore also for sure for the record cocktails is too much like freaky tales and when I sing them both in concert uh-huh. I mix the words up it's too much oh, of the okay. same phrases uh-huh. so I just I chose I chose to ride with freaky tales over cocktails so so check it out so I went to I went to college with Stephen Curry so I'm a Warriors fan um, and I've claimed Oakland as my second home even though I've, I've never been to Oakland I'm from Mississippi mm-hmm. never been to Oakland but uh, from the South, I think we kind of bunched the West Coast kind of in as one place. Like, what's the difference between Oakland and, say, like, L.A. for somebody like me who doesn't know that culturally, especially back then in the 80s when you were making this album? L.A. has a different dress code when you're talking to hip-hop street culture. Different dress code, different slang words. Uh, to an out-of-towner, you know, my family's from Jackson, Mississippi. My daddy's from Jackson. My mom's from New Orleans. I spent 15 years in Atlanta. I know the outside opinions on how to how you hear the California accent. It sounds the same. What's the difference? I don't see it. Jerry curls, whatever. But Bay Area, Bay Area, we never really took to um, the lowrider six four Chevys. In the Bay, the lowrider culture was more leaning towards like the Mexican homies. And, you know, they were very much into it. You go to a car show, it's definitely lowriders and stuff. But the brothers around my way were all into older cars that had, like, really high-performance engines. And you got to set up the right tires and stuff to do that high-performance stuff. And if you got, like, a lowrider with switches and little tiny wheels, you can't do that high-performance stuff. So, you know, you you see everybody doing the donuts and standing, the crowd standing around and, you know, we call it the side show. Now LA is calling it the takeover, whatever. That's all Bay Area culture. That comes from the Bay. And literally before they had a side show, we had guys who would stop at a red light and and burn 
a perfect figure eight on the street and then take off. And when you look at the skid mark, it's the number eight. And that's like, that's driving skills. So we, we call it like, it's a lot of nicknames we have for it. But, you know, the young dudes now, they say you got bars. If you can drive like that, we used to just say you got handles. If you okay. Like my, my man, got, he, can, he can handle that thing because you can have a car, you can build it, but you can't handle it. Bay Area, we, we really lean a lot towards, if you listen to us in hip hop, we, we uphold this thing called the game. And the game is like, that's, your, that's what you learn in the streets, how to not be a punk, how to not be, you know, a pushover, like, like just, just like some kind of, you know, like, like you are the master of every situation you in. And you don't have to be a pimp to have the game. It's definitely a pimp phrase, pimp game, the game. But it applies to so much more because the Bay, and I, you know, I, I like to say the Bay, but I'm just keeping it in Oakland. It's a lot of slick talking, slick, slick game running motherfuckers out there. And if you're not gamed up, if you don't have it, you're going to always find yourself on the wrong end of slick shit. And just, you just got, there's no way you can't have it. Because if you don't have it, you don't even need to be living there. Like it's that serious. And I think that a better survival technique in LA is to, is to know how to navigate your way through gang culture. And you got to know the politics of gang of gangs to survive. So we don't have that, that element in the Bay. We definitely didn't have it when I was coming up to where you got to go blue and red. And this gang is affiliated with that gang. And then you can't wear this over here. We, we didn't have that. I could, I could wear red today, blue tomorrow. I could call you blood all day. And then at 8 PM, I start calling you cuz it doesn't mean nothing in the Bay. It means nothing. And my L.A. homies will come up later on, the hip-hop guys. My rap homies, they was like, you guys are some fucking weirdos. Because somebody in the Bay would be like, what up, cuz? What up, cousin? What's, what's up with blood? And like, you just said all that shit in two sentences? Like, like. and then, and then I remember uh, some of the Crip homies. Like, somebody in Oakland would call you, like, blood in, like, three times in one sentence. Blood, what's up with blood? And then blood, what's happening? That's a sentence. And the Crips was like, like, dude, bloods don't even talk like that. What the fuck are y'all doing? Like, like I never heard a blood say blood that many times. So it was, it's a big difference. You can hear a L.A. song, production, flow, subject, and you go, that's an L.A. song, vice versa. L.A. people, they hear a Bay song, they go, oh, that's from the Bay. Now, you do have a lot of songs that cross the lines. You have a guy like me or whoever, me and Ann Banks in there. We trying to make something with a little Dr. Dre flavor. You know what I mean? A little, it's West Coast. We're going to put a little bit of that in there on this song or that song. You know, it's not, it's not against the rules. And then you'll hear LA artists make songs that are Bay influenced. We definitely hear the difference. When he first started doing it and get popular, we used to say DJ Mustard had a Bay Area sound. Tiger, Tiger has a Bay Area sound. And I don't really think that it's fair to go Bay Area sound, but I just think that certain things in early in their career was Bay Area influenced and they interpreted it in their own way. A lot of people from the Bay were LA influenced and you could hear it in the music. So, you know, to an outsider, I don't know what you hear. Um, I know when I was in Atlanta, they just go West Coast is West Coast, but but it's, it's some different sauce in there for sure.
So life is too short. You mentioned a lot about the success of Freaky Tales. How did that one song change your life? Well, Freaky Tales is a song that I wrote when I was in high school. It was called Freaky Tales, and it was about um, specifically about 16 women. And it told the tale of how I met these 16 women. And it was pretty popular in the streets. So when I got my opportunity to get a bigger audience, Freaky Tales was something that was one of my winning songs in the streets i'm like i gotta bring this to the to the you know national attention the national distribution and i i rewrote the song for my years with the label 75 girls records which would have been 1985 86 i rewrote freaky tales the name of the label was called 75 girls i rewrote the song so it told the story of not just 16 women but 75 women and that version, I recorded it, but I have no idea where the recording ended up at. Nobody's ever heard it. I don't know where it's at. That version had a lot of, it was it was boring. It had a lot of gaps where it just got like, you know, too little ABC-ish, and it was, it was corny. So when I did the Born and Mac album, and I re-recorded the Freaky Tales that everybody knows, I literally just looked at all the lines that I thought, this is super corny, and I just took them out. So it went from 75 girls. I think the official version, I I can't specifically remember counting, but I think back in the day I, I came up with, like, I think it's 40, 41, 42 different females mentioned in Freaky Tales. I mean, that's a good number. That's, that's a solid number. So I trimmed off, like, you know, 30-ish, and the song went from, it was a, fuck, it was like 16 minutes long, and it went down to, like, 11 minutes or something. I don't know what the official. I forget all of them. I used to know the math on this stuff, man, but it's been a long time. So I was watching the Drink Champs interview you did a couple years ago, and you mentioned that you don't see yourself as an MC, right? But as a younger artist, during the making of this album, you seemed really concerned about MCing and how people saw you as an MC. What was the catalyst that sort of changed all of that? Well, you could hear when I was like slightly doing my little, I got a rap voice like this on some of, the, some of my songs. I was trying to be a rapper. I was just doing what was out there. Run DMC was the hottest thing. You got Kumo D, Houdini, like, you know, Grandmaster Flash, Melly Mel, you know what I'm saying? You got, that's what it is. That's the hottest shit. LL Cool J, that's the hot shit. So no matter what I'm doing naturally, the influences of what's popular is definitely got my attention. So I'm finding my way. The first time they put me on stage in front of a big crowd, in 1985, I hadn't had a, a record. I'd never been in a real studio. I came out and did a damn good show, but if anybody ever had a picture, I was dressed like Run DMC. Like, I didn't know, I didn't know what the fuck to do. So in finding my way of just using my voice, which is uh, on Born and Mac, you listen to a song like Party Time. I'm trying to be a rapper. But then if you listen to Dauphine Beat, I'm being too short. And in Freaky Tales, I'm just doing, I'm just, Freaky Tales has no rules and regulations. I'm just rapping the way we rapped in the streets back in the day. But I'm really being too short on the Dauphine beat. That's one of my favorite songs ever because it just, something happened that day that never happened again. I could never duplicate it ever again. So, um, in my times of maybe even thinking, you know, because in the Bay, I really didn't have any 
competition or any comparisons of anybody else who was who was out rapping me because for a long time I was the only rapper. It was me, Freddie B. It was a couple of guys from here or there. It was nobody as popular as Too Short and Freddie B. We had it. You know, before E-40 and the rest of them came along, it was Too Short and Freddie B. And anybody else was rapping, but they wasn't Too Short and Freddie B. That's, that, it, we, was, we was it. So I get my confidence to let go and stop trying to compete as a lyricist or even think about that shit. I get my confidence when I, I get national criticism from people who are uh, critics who write about your album. So the out, al- everything I drop is super successful. Every stage I get on the crowd is loving it. But every time I read a review about too short, they say he can't rap. The music is whack. Uh, the language is like, it seems like if he didn't curse, who would care? It's just, it's a novelty. And I got this for the Born and Mac album, the Life is Too Short album, the Short Dogs in the House album, and every album that I ever could remember reading the reviews from that came out of New York and hip hop media, it was always like, you know, five stars, give them, give them a three, give them two and a half, give them. It was just, it was just like, I, the sentiment was like, this album is selling a lot, but this artist would never do this again. And it just, that is like, it's supposed to crush you, but that shit was motivational. That was, that was like, because of the success, the critics didn't really have a real voice to me. And then I would compare, I was really into everything. Like I would never go, fuck you critics. But I was really into, I absorbed everything hip hop. I heard every song that came out, every artist. I read every magazine interview, everything on everybody. And the stuff that was critically acclaimed was not touching the sales or the <laughs> success of what I was doing. So I'm like, I'm, I'm smart, man. I'm like, this is, I'm on to something. Like, all I got to do is keep doing this. Cause obviously if this guy is the best rapper and he's selling half the units I'm selling, that means that the people like what I'm doing better than that. I was like, I know what this is. Cause I'm, I'm sitting here from the first time I buy my first car I go spend more on the fucking sound system than I do on the car. And I understand what it is. I'm like, those guys ride around on trains. They don't have cars because they live in buildings and they don't even have parking lots. So they ride trains and the best sound system they have is the headphones. They have no fucking idea what I'm doing. So in all of my being a major fan of all the East Coast classic groups, I understood where I fit in the hierarchy of what they do. And I'm like, my shit is not made for rapper comparison or freestyle battles. I, I just, I despise freestyling. Like I like, I enjoy watching it, but if you put that on me, I'm like freestyle. You want me to go stand over there and rhyme to you for free? I just use my brain to come. Fuck that. I'm like, every time I rhyme, somebody going to pay me. Like, I'm not doing this. This is not, it's not a hobby. Never was. When I was in, when I was in 11th grade, rapping was not a hobby. It was my job. Yeah, right. Like, because on songs like Cuss Words, you start going after people who say you can't rap and criticizing your music. Did you ever stop caring about the criticism and people criticizing your work? I think life is too short. I still cared. I was still, 
it was still fresh. I was only coming off of the critiques from from Born to Mac. It wasn't really a lot out there. So I'm trying to be that guy. I got a lot of money off Born to Mac. It was the start of uh, me, you know, not being like a, you know, a pocket change kind of dude and actually having like a bank account and two cars and, you know, I had money. I got like I was getting money daily, monthly, you know, it was, it was nice. And we started getting those big checks. So everything that happened during Born and Mac, the changing of, of, you know, just having a few pair of Nikes and a couple of little clean fits to, to having shopping money whenever I want. All that change is what made me go, damn, well, if I got that from making Born and Mac, watch what the fuck I do next. So I'm in, I'm in there giving life is too short my all. I'm like, this is my job. If I tell them I'm going to start making this album, they're going to send me a check. If I finish it, they're going to send me another check. I made the album before they even sent the first check. Before they sent the check to say, here's your budget to make your album, the album was already complete. I sent them the album, the credits, the, you know, everything, the artwork, all in one package before they could even send the first check. So they had to send me the front end and the back end in one check. And my whole philosophy was, if this is what I get, this is this fucking easy. Like, watch this. I was, I was turning in an album every nine, 10, 11 months. Just here's another one. I wasn't, I was not making my albums with my recording budget. I was, we were just doing it cause we already had the resources. So, um, I didn't I didn't really get it on life is too short. I didn't have that filter of I don't give a fuck. I wasn't that advanced yet. But after that, when you hear me, the first thing I'm rapping on the next album, Short Dogs in the House, is a song called Short Dogs in the House. And I'm talking about I'm really I took notes while I was on tour. So if I stopped in Jackson, Mississippi and something happened to me, I took notes to where did I go to? Where did I eat at? Who did I meet? What was the experience? How are the people? And I rapped that song on the opening song of the next album. I rapped that. And that's just, everything changed. You know, you could listen to the next album and you could just hear, I'm, I'm not broke anymore. You know what I mean? Like I'm, my life changed. And on Life is Too Short, that hadn't happened yet. So I'm still, it's a hunger on there, I guess, that ain't on. You know, we were, I was had Al Eaton, a little more experience. The quality, the quality goes way up, but I'm also still like kind of green on what really is too short. I'm, it's raw, you know, I can't, you can ask me a million times. I could never answer the magic of life is too short. I have no fucking idea why it outsold twice every other thing I ever did. So your flow has stayed pretty consistent for the most part of three decades, right? A lot of rappers feel pressure to change their style, but yours is like a classic. Like, we all know the two short styles. Subjects, voice, everything. Everything, right? Like, have you ever felt the need to switch up or do anything different at any point? And if so, how did that go? I know Al Eden wanted you to do the MC Hammer thing, but anytime you try to switch things up. Well, at least twice, maybe more, I tried to um, to tweak around with the auto-tune and play around with it. And my engineer, literally, who is not my boss, won't do the shit. And it's like, I'm like, and let's let's just put a little auto tune and, and trick this now. My engineer is like, no, nobody wants to hear auto tune on too short. <laughs> and I'm like, 
I'm like, dude, let's just do it just for the fun of it. I'm like, I heard a song E40 doing it. He's like, don't do it, bro. Like, don't. I'm like, all right. I wait about a year and brought it up again. He's like, I, I, he's like, I'm not going to be the engineer that engineered a song with Too Short doing auto-tune. He's like, you got to get somebody else to do that shit. So. I mean, the voice is iconic, man. You don't want to mess with the voice. So, you know, you can go to like some random songs. I used to hang out with a lot of dudes from Chicago and a lot of different rappers. We had a crew in Atlanta called uh, Nationwide, and we named it that because everybody was from somewhere different. And that's that was the whole melting pot of ATL. So I dabbled with some little little flows and shit, you know, like some twister type of like double time flows. But I would always do it in a too short way. So you probably heard him. I'm on a little John's beat here and there, flipping the flow a little bit. You probably heard it, but I just jump in, mess around with it, and then jump back out and and not really like change. And like I said, the reason why you don't get a lot of venturing away from the style is because every time I go to make a new album, I listen to the old albums. And I understand that when you when you become successful and your your environment changes, it's it's hard on a rapper to live the struggle, overcome it, pour your struggle, your heart, your real existence onto your first couple of projects, your what you really doing, what you know, what it is that that people are like, oh, I like that dude. It's hard to do that and then buy a really nice house, get a bunch of groupies. Everybody around you going, you the man, you the man. You got all this nice stuff. You got an endless supply of weed. There's a swimming pool in your back backyard. Every time you go out, you the man. Everywhere you go, they want to see you. And then you say, hey, do that struggle thing again, bro. You know that? Make that album that, you know, like, like you did when you first came out. It's really hard. I really respect rappers who can make three, four, five, six, seven albums that their fans love and that you keep going. My guy's dope. Like you get into a comfort zone and you know the next Ludacris album's gonna be dope. The next Outcast album's gonna be dope. You know this. You don't have to go, man, I wonder if Luda gonna do it again. You don't have to do that because as as quite a few of us rappers who mastered it in our first album or two that we present to you, we master what it is that you like and we keep bringing it to you no matter if that artist changes up a bit. They keep, they stay consistent with, I like where he, where he went this time or where that group went this time. So, um, I tap into Too Short as a fan when I'm riding down the highway and I'm listening to five old Too Short albums. I'm a fan. I'm not. I'm not me listening to. I'm analyzing Too Short from a technical perspective. What What did the guy do? Like, what's his subjects? Like, what has he not tapped into? Oh, you know, a lot of times I, I even though my shit is basic as fuck, I have like a handful of different flows. And a lot of times I'll forget about a flow I did back in the day. And I'm like, damn, I should bring that flow back. And I wait till I find the right beat to rap that flow. And it's, you know, the flow is like the cadence or the way you uh, ride your voice up and down to, to a certain, you know, melodic kind of flow. And I bring them back, man. You know, um, it's a style that I got that's whack as hell, but people love it. I'm like, it's too short, baby, on the microphone. People are like, bro, you be spitting when you do it. I'm like, that's like the wackest shit I do, but I I have to bring it back because somebody always going to say, I mean, 
I like the way the old short, the old short, you know, so I, 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 I remind myself by doing my homework and then I, you know, put elements of it in there. So what is something on this album that drives you crazy when you listen back to it? I don't expect you to be able to pinpoint it, but all of these songs have mistakes. And when I say mistakes, I mean, I said something different that wasn't on the paper when I was reading the rap back when I was recording. Uh, I made mistakes. But, you know, like coming from the funk era, a student of the funk listening to Parliament Funkadelic in the headphones as a kid all the way to a young adult. I like mistakes. I I, I don't mind a wrong note because we got a lot of live instrumentation on our songs. If it's the wrong note in the right place, I don't mind it. If something happened that wasn't supposed to happen, I'm like, you know, they get ready. The engineer gets ready to clean it up. I'm like, no, 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 leave that. Leave it. They're like, but that's, you want, I like, just leave it because that's, that's different. So, listening back on this album, you know, Don't Fight the Feeling was almost a whole different song. That, that song has a lot of possibilities, a lot of iffy things that could have happened. The first version was me. I was supposed to be this older guy, like in my Cadillac or whatever flirting with these young girls, just flirting with them. They kind of like, get away from me, dude. Like, leave me alone. You know, like you pull up on the chicks in the car with the window down. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was just rapping this little flirtatious rap. Hey, what's up, little mama? What's up with y'all? And the the females that came in to do the female part, mm. they literally have wrote this rhyme like, like, like the words that they're singing on the song. It's like crucial. So I'm in there being like nice, like, hey, what's your name? And they come back with that shit. And I'm like listening to the song. They they thought I was mad because the first session was super fucking awkward. And I was I was not mad. I was just like, well, damn, they they made a different song that I made, but their version is way better than what I was thinking about. And I was like, cool. I need to go back and rewrite my shit. So I'm talking shit. And I came and rewrote the words that everybody hears now I got rid of the nice stuff and wrote the version that you hear now. And it was just my verse, the girls, mine, and then the girls. And then my homie rapping Fote, he was like, that's just disrespectful. He was like, you short dog. And we can't have this disrespect go out. And I'm like, bro, this song is genius. So he was like, let me do a verse on there too, where I just bring it home and they don't get the last word on too short. Cause it was my verse. Then them, than me and then them. So we put him on the end so that he put it into some sort of perspective like y'all ain't clowning too short. So turns out it was um a classic. Most It was one of the songs that really lured a lot of females into being a too short fan where I could be like talking shit and females go, with, we could talk shit back to you. Like So, you know, I wish that I knew what I knew later, which was the quality of mixing but you're not supposed to, you're supposed to live and learn. You're not supposed to just, you know, complete the learning curve. When you first start, you got to learn. So I wish I, I wish I could have made those songs knowing what I knew a few years later, but it was just, we just didn't know that yet. And, um, I look at the, um, I look at the track list and you wondered, you know, you made a song, like you made an album with nine songs. Why is that? And the track list will tell you, like, 
the shortest song is four seventeen. Oh yeah, he's in long tracks. Multiple more than three verses on most of them. Yeah, so it's three songs that are four minutes plus, almost five minutes. Then there's six forty one, six fifteen, eight thirteen, seven forty four. It's a couple songs that's five five something. And it's a it's a nice experience. Those nine songs are a dope ass vibe. So um, I also think that maybe that's another reason why this is one of the better albums because it doesn't have those those moments where you go, let me skip this song, and you just you just those nine songs do it, they do it right. So I think my only regret would literally be in, what if I fixed all the mistakes? I probably wouldn't if I could, but if I could mix it better, that would be dope. If you if you could hear this with the the newer quality, it'd be dope. I'm struck by Nobody Does It Better for a couple of reasons. Fourth verse is really this inspirational tale for kids to stay in school, stay away from drugs. You have songs like this in your early work, especially. People might not expect that from you. Talk about the importance of infusing these messages in your music. Well, you would understand it if you knew my mother. And when I was, when I was about 16, my mother did the, you know, the, the, the teenager search on my room when I wasn't home. And... I think she found like a, a couple joints, the weed and some other little whatever, like, you know, like she she presented the stuff to me. Not she didn't confront me. She just made her presentation. She the stuff that she found <laughs> just laid it out. <laughs> she sat it out with a long ass letter. And uh-huh. what she found was was a bunch of my raps. Mm-hmm. The letter was like she didn't even mention the weed. The letter was like did you write these songs? Like she was hurt. She, the, it was a lot of hurt. Like who the fuck are you? Like, like this ain't the kid that I know. What are you saying? She's like, it, it was like, she was like, I hope you don't believe this stuff to be true. <laughs> like, like she put the guilt trip on me heavy. And I think that, you know, I don't know if it's re- range true for girls, but for a boy, you kind of, always kind of like you know when you get in trouble it's like i'm sorry mama you know what i mean like like if a, if a dude go to jail he's first thing he think about is his mama like damn my mama you know i'm in trouble like you don't want to let your mama down when you make it big first thing you do is i want to do something for my mama that's just that's just the way it is so i think that always in my mind when i when i was being true to myself and just writing my feelings and writing about my surroundings as far as the community and trying to make statements, I really think that that was me being my mother's child and knowing that I'm sitting here going, suck my dick, bitch, on like three songs and like I would be in trouble if I didn't mm-hmm. do this other thing too. Uh-huh. So she's like, she's like, you wrote this stuff? I'm like, but look, my mom wrote this song called The Ghetto. Look at this one. Uh-huh. So I, could, <laughs> I could like show her, you know uh-huh. what I mean? I made a song that you liked when you was young, Donnie Hathaway, The Ghetto. And it's on the radio. People love it. So she was like, I'm proud of my son. But then she would never say that if it was just cuss words. She would be like, I don't know who this is. So um, partially, I think it was my mother just lingering over my head, like not trying to get in trouble. Grandmother also. And the other part was I thought it was kind of smart that in order for you to put out this explicit music, that was very rare. Not a lot of curse words in hip hop. 
definitely not anything talking about pimping hoes. And definitely the only thing that was talking sexually explicit lyrics like I was doing was comedy albums. Nothing in hip hop was going that explicit in hip hop when I started doing it. And I think that the genius of it was if your parents whoop your ass for listening to a rap song that's talking about fucking 40 girls, you might be able to right before you get your ass whooped, they go, what you listening to? And you flip that tape over to side one <laughs> uh-huh. and be like, I'm just listening to this. And they're mm-hmm. like, all right. Or when you get them to buy it and they're like, what'd you buy? Let me hear it. They, they monitoring your music. Mm-hmm. The first four songs that come on before they like, before you get a repo and revoked and, and get it destroyed are nice songs. Uh-huh. So I thought that that was um, a way to like protect the fan base who was, uh, you know, like when I used to sneak and listen to Richard Pryor records. If you had, if you was a preacher's kid or something, you had to sneak and listen to Too Short. You had a little, a little, um, you know, cloak of uh, invisibility there to, to get you by. And then, um, and you know, it's just like, also like, it's a lot of philosophies. It was like, you can't just turn on song one and go, Nancy Reagan lick my dick. You can't just do that. You gotta, you gotta like ease it on them. And you're like, yeah, get them into the stuff. And it was the competition. Like, you know, you know, people saying at the time, you can't put this explicit stuff out. You can't do it. People told me that I couldn't put as much bass as I put in Freaky Tales. You couldn't turn the bass up that loud because if you put the needle on the groove on the record, the frequency of the bass would not allow it to transfer right through the speaker. And I said, well, that's cool because we're not really doing any records. We're only doing cassettes. <laughs> and the engineer that was mixing that shit thought I was crazy. And I literally remember making Freaky Tales and that Born and Mac album and the bass, the main bass would be on the lower tracks. Like, you know, the, the kick drum would be on one and the bass line would be somewhere like on four or something like that. And the guy kept putting it to where it was supposed to be. And I kept, I'm sitting there right at the board. I always, I'm, I never let anything too short happen without me there from the mixing, the mastering, the everything. I'm, I've been hands-on since day one. And I keep pushing the, 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 the bass back up and the kick drum back up louder. And I look over and it's back down lower. And I'm like, dude, quit touching the bass. And I literally had to like, like I'm a kid working with an expert engineer and he's telling me, stupid motherfucker, you don't know what you're doing. I'm like, my only argument was we ain't pressing no wax. So now what? It's cassettes only. And I got in my way. It's super random, but you have nobody does it better. DLC has no one could do it better. Is this some sort of rivalry I didn't know about? Like everybody's always doing subliminals and all this stuff. Was there a rivalry back then at the time? No, I think you have to analyze all of hip hop. Um, let's say prior to 1990, everybody's making I me songs. Like it's, it's a bragging environment. You know, the subject started, you know, easing into hip hop after the message came out in 1982, but it was still a lot of bragging. A lot of bragging, a lot of, you know, you had to have your song about the community, you know, and how we going to uplift people going through the struggle. Um, you got to have your party joints, you know, where you just say, let loose, have fun. But then you got to brag. And if you're not bragging, you're not rapping. And to this day, that's that stands solid in hip hop. You have to say 
when you're asked, who's your favorite rapper? You just got to say me. Who you think's the best rapper? Me. You're like, you really believe that? Even if I didn't believe it, I wouldn't tell you. It's me. DOC, I was with him hanging out a lot during those days when he named that album, when he made that album, because he was also on that Straight Outta Compton tour. And I feel like he told me a story or something, or he told everybody the story that it was something about the statue or something on the album cover, and the statue said it or something, and it was just inspiration. His favorite rappers were the best of the best, and he wanted to be the best of the best. Like, he did not want to... Like, I wanted to make funky songs. He wanted to be the best of the best rappers. So his first album was displaying lyrical skills on purpose. Like, that was what he was... We, we, we often talk about DLC about what he would have been had he not had the situation with his voice. But that's a statement. Nobody does it better. That's just a statement. I don't think it's related to him making the same statement or the same gesture. It's just how you have to say it. It's how you have to feel. If you want to walk in a room and stand side by side with every other rapper that's successful, you have to say that and believe that before you walk in that room. You have to say that when you meet your favorite rapper, the best rapper you ever thought was the best, you have to say to his face, you know, I'm better than you. Right. And he goes, no, you're not. And you go, yeah, yeah, I am. I am. Obviously you are pioneer sex talk. Now we see a lot of women MCs being sexually explicit and having commercial success. You work with Sweetie, Megan Thee Stallion, but their songs like WAP, FNF, and Munch, um, you know, making money in a way that's really refreshing. How do you sort of feel about that? And also like the criticism that these women are getting. Well, believe me or not, I have been trying to get females to rap like too short since the nineties. Okay. And a lot of females that I came across that were really good rappers wouldn't go there. They're like, I'm not, I'm not doing that. And this is like, before Little Kim and Foxy, this is during, this is after. A lot of females wouldn't go there with their skills. They're like, I'm not presenting myself like that. I have a family. I have respect for myself. I'm not doing that type of rap. And um, I just always knew it was a lane for that. Like if a, a female had a sort of a, uh, the exact opposite style of like misogynist rappers, if the females were just like, you know, R&B. To me, crossed that boundary, you know, they crossed that border before hip-hop, really, to me. And that's because R&B started making the songs that ridiculed the broke dudes and, and you know, Scrubs and all those songs. And I used to, I remember when I used to hear those songs at first. And I was like, this shit is whack. Like, I get it that it's anthems for the females, but this shit gets no airplay in my car. Like, like I'm not promoting that. And, but I understood what it was. I'm like, we need this, but I'm not about to listen to it. And I always felt that if females would have took a too short sort of approach, you know, like Missy Elliott came along, was kind of raunchy and, and very pro female. And it worked. The brat came along. A lot of them came along and did it. But now we got an overabundance of it. And it's a genre now which hip hop doesn't get proper credit for its subgenres. We keep getting called hip hop. And I'm like, it's like 25 different kinds of hip hops, like completely different kinds. And it's a lot of it's like unrelated to the other kind. Like it's just not hip hop. You know what I mean? 
And now this new genre, they uh, somebody tried to go stripper rap, and I'm like, that ain't fair. You can't really call it hoe rap either. I just think it's if I had to name it, I would just call it shit talking females. And it was just that would be my subgenre for it. What's your favorite shit talking female song out right now? I got a whole playlist on that shit. Okay, like, literally, I have days where I just listen to female rappers because. A lot of male rappers right now are kind of whiny. And they, like, <laughs> they, it, you know, they came with this thing called emotional rap. Mm-hmm. And it's dope, but it's kind of whiny, man. It's like, you got What's on the playlist? What's on, what's on the, uh, the, the, the raunchy girl playlist? I'd have to go turn, turn on my laptop and tell you, man. But it's, it's, uh, it's a bunch of songs where the females are saying, if you ain't who I need you to be, Get the fuck away from me. And there's so many words. And I, and it really like motivates me more right now than any other kind of rap. Like it it is and then, you know, I'm I'm hanging out with like with like females and they're requesting these songs. <laughs> and they're like, you know, you put on like even like like I just Glow Real is like the new, newest kid on the block that's doing good but if you you know an og like me if i hit glorilla on pandora you know og style it's gonna it's not gonna play nothing but shit talking females it's gonna play some of her song then all these females are gonna talk shit forever and it's it's amazing that warms my heart actually a lot of our older brothers veteran brothers in hip-hop are down talking these women so it makes me feel good that you yeah because I, I just saw um jermaine and somebody say you know okay we get it we like it uh-huh. All right, females do something else. Why the females got to do something else? <laughs> like nobody came to me on album number two and said, "All right, we get it, do something else." I'm like, mm-hmm. man, I'm about to do this for for uh, 19 more albums. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> so I'm telling the females that talk shit, talk shit for 19 more albums. Like keep doing it because we have many artists who do many different styles. If that style is working for you, do it. Do whatever mm-hmm. you want to do. Be an artist. You can't tell an artist with a paintbrush what to paint. Right. Just paint it. That's, that's dope. We're closing out with our album snippets. Super short answers, as quick as possible. Um, just three 10-second answers. Who's your favorite Warriors player of all time? Favorite Warriors player of all time, Mitch Richmond. Mitch Richmond, okay. Best West Coast rap album of all time that's not a too-short album? Um, I could say uh, Machiavelli. Mm-hmm. I could say uh, sex packets. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely, definitely an Ice Cube album somewhere in there. Like, you know. okay, all right. America's Most Wanted is my favorite, but you know, exactly. <laughs> yeah. What's your What's your second favorite word? Second favorite word is the hustle, man. Hustle. Hustle. Okay. All right. Final question: What's one song from another artist you wish was yours? Uh, what song would I have made mine? You know that song. Uh, I actually made a version of it, and and they told me you can't put that shit out. Uh-huh. But you know that song, uh, Kaya made my neck, my back. Yeah. Uh, I would have definitely wish I could have made the opposite of that before she like the beat and everything. Like it's just right. it's one of those timeless songs. Oh, that's perfect. That's perfect. You should. You, they definitely could have got you on a remix. No, I actually made a version. Uh huh. And 
She was like, back up off my signature song, which understandable. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. understandable. I I would have did the same thing, like 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 kill that, kill all right. that. But um, you know that's that's not a reality. That's right. just you said. What would I have wanted to right, do? Right, right. Yeah. I think that the fact that that song sounds good forever, that song is what it was supposed to be. Period. So me butchering it or flipping it to for the guys that was not nah, that would that wouldn't be cool. And what else do you have going on right now? Anything else going on you want to talk about? Anything I ask you about? Anything you want to say? Well, you know, I'm 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 still making the music. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely uh dropping more albums. Uh, there's uh, Mount Westmore is, is a beautiful thing with uh, Snoop Dogg, Ice Cube, E40, and myself. We definitely we just dropped an album. We definitely dropping another one. Um, uh, I do a radio show every week on Sirius XM. It's called Don't Stop Rapping. I like to play a lot of new music, a lot of old music. I just I think that um th- the concept of my show is just playing songs that I think always sounded good and always will sound good. So the, you know the concept is just classic, timeless, and I believe in I play new songs because I believe in new classics and, and new songs that things that I <clears throat> songs that I just think I would love to listen to forever, like will never grow tired with me. Um, I'm working on a movie. I wrote a book that I never put out. I might put the book out one day. I. I I don't put the book out because a book seems like the last chapter seems like the end of a story and my, my last chapter is still being written. So not, not too eager to just drop a book with, with like, what's the end? There's no fucking end. Too short. Thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure getting to hear the backstories behind your album. Life is too short. That's it for today. I'm your host, David Dennis Jr. This is rap stories. See you next time. This podcast is produced by Podville Media for Anscape, a black-led media platform dedicated to creating, highlighting, and uplifting diverse black stories. Anscape, where blackness is infinite. Dina Morrison is the series producer. Our production team, Brittany Danielle, Rob Spiewak, Lenika Belfield-Martin, Ethan Sands, and Eli Nellis. The series was edited by Stephen Williams, Kelsey Johnson, and Rob Ford. Executive producers, Steve Reese, Elizabeth Elson, and Oscar Zabayos. Raina Kelly is Anscape's vice president and editor-in-chief. David Oku created the original artwork for the series. Special thanks to Tracy Smith, Mike Shahade, Rami Mogadam, Katie Lawson, Beth Stoikov, Anna Grambling, Ashley Melfi, John Gotti, Kelly Evans, Ryan Broadhead, and Kevin Wilson. And I'm your host, David Dennis Jr. Thank you for listening.